0: The Resurrection, looking at biblical perspectives in the Old and New Testaments, is kind of a long title for the message this morning, but I couldn't come up with a shorter one, so that's what it was. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting, in the the Bible as a whole, I mean, the whole thing is, if you looked at the overarching themes, there are many sub-themes in the Bible, and, and that's fine, but the overarching theme is redemption. The overarching theme is the redemption of lost humanity by a holy God and the provision that he makes for you, for me, in it. And when we look at the resurrection, it's not something that Jesus kind of went, oh, I know, I, I think I'll die and then I'll raise from the dead. It, it wasn't something that, it was. this is something that was planned out from eternity past, and it was planned out. Our redemption, our purchase, was planned out from way back, and and because our church has been in the Gospel of John, and somebody said, "Wow, you almost made the timing right," to where we were studying the resurrection on the resurrection on resurrection Sunday. Um, well, because we've just finished studying it, I'd been in prayer about, well, where do you Lord, where do you want us to go? Because I certainly want to to honor you in our remembrance of the resurrection this day, and I just sensed that the Holy Spirit had his hand upon me and, and pulling me back into the Old Testament, into these things. Were I mean, the New Testament, 2,000 years old roughly, ancient texts. The Old Testament go back fifteen to 1,900 years before that. So we're looking at somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 years, and we see the resurrection. We see it through what we call types. All right? We've got a couple of slides here, and I want to explain to you what a type is. If you'll notice on the screens, I've got a typewriter, and if you're under 40, get with me later, I'll explain it to you. Um, because now we use word processors. And, and back then, they, they called it a typographer, a typographer. What it is, you'll see that all the letters are backwards on there, and they're pieces of steel or lead type that were used. And what that would have, what would happen, you press the button, you see the buttons in the background at the top of the screen there, is you press the button and this piece of type would fly up and transfer through a ribbon with ink on it and make an impression on the paper. So the next slide. This is the impression. All right. When we look at types in the Bible, it's very much like this. And this is just a great object lesson or example because the type is the real. That's the tangible. That's the objective. That's the reality. The impression that's created by the type is not the type, but it's an impression. Impression. And when we look at types in the Bible, sort of like this, we see the real is Jesus. He is the object of the types that we see in the Old Testament. And and the word type means impression or shadow, foreshadowing. And so as we look back and we go back, we're going to go all the way back to the creation. And we're going to look at shadows of Jesus and the resurrection that go all the way back. And then we're going to come forward and and kind of conclude in looking at things in the New Testament as we go along. And then ultimately, Jesus' part in it. So as we look at this, understand that the natural order of life is life leading to death. I mean, all of us have that in our future, unless the Lord comes and we're caught up to meet with Him in the air, as we're told in Thessalonians, but... But the point is, is that the natural order is life leading to death. It wasn't always that way. We'll look at Adam in a few minutes here. But the in the, the great conundrum, the great question for humanity is, who am I and why am I here? And what's going to happen to me, to my soul when I die? And, and that God in his mercy and in his compassion makes provision for us. As sinful people to come into his presence to have the ability to spend eternity with him. That, there are shadows and types going all the way back. So the divine order is, is different. It's the opposite. We talk about the upside down kingdom that we live in, that the natural order is death, lead, or life leading to death. I mean, we're born and we die. The divine order is death leading to life. We call it resurrection. And so, what we look at in God's Word is we're going to look at these types, and we're going to see that there are hints, but they grow in their in their strength and in our understanding, and that we see that there's more depth as we go, uh, as we go along here. And so, understand these types; they're, they're shadows that point to an ultimate fulfillment, and that's the point. So, in in the first one, I want to look at is Job. Now, Job is probably the oldest. Book in the Bible written, and it's, nobody knows exactly when Job was written, but it's likely that it was written during the time of the patriarchs, probably between 1700 and 1900 BC. A very old book written before the books of Moses, even though the events took place afterwards. Uh, but in Job chapter 19, there's a really interesting passage. And it says that for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know in my flesh, I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. So Job sees the natural order, life leading to death. My when my skin is destroyed, when he when my tangible physical body is destroyed, But then he sees prophetically the divine order that he has a body. He says that in my flesh, I will see God. And Job would have no practical way of understanding, but this is a type. It's a shadow of a fulfillment that would be experienced only in Christ. And so there's this kingdom order, death, resulting in life. And we see both of those here. So going on from there, and we're going to just kind of race through here. I don't have text on the monitors this morning. The reason is, is I'm going to be covering a lot of ground. And I I felt that if we just put the book up there that we're going to be in, that to go further than that would just be a distraction because we're going to be flying through and looking at a number of different things as we move through the Old Testament. And we're only looking at a few. I, I want you to these are just prayerfully selected a handful of scriptures that would bring out the point of these shadows of Jesus, these shadows of the resurrection going all the way back. So from there, let's look at Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we see in chapter 2, verse 7, the creation of man. And so, I mean, it says that God breathed life into man, that he literally, and we looked at that, uh, a couple of weeks back, when we were looking at when Jesus breathed on the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, recreation in that sense, and here at the creation, God creates man, and he breathes life into him. This is not just physical life. Man was created in perfect harmony, perfect communion, perfect fellowship with God. That's why man was created. It was because God wanted to have fellowship with his creation. He wanted to experience a relationship with his creation. And so, He breathes life into man and only 10 verses later in chapter 2, verse 17, God gives a warning. And he says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew that you shall surely die. It says dying, you shall die. And we know that that's what happened. I'm I'm not going to go through the account of the creation. I mean, we all know what happened to Adam and Eve. And, And yet we know that on the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, that they didn't die physically. I mean, the remember, God drove them out of the garden and posted the, the angelic beings at the entrance so that they couldn't come back in and all that. So, But we, we know that man died spiritually in that time. Fellowship with God was broken. And so, as we look at this, in Romans chapter 5, The Apostle Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all man because all sin. What Paul is saying there is that because we inherit Adam's nature, that we are predisposed to sin. We have a sin nature and that it's not Adam's sin that condemns us, but the nature that we inherit, all of us sin. And that's what he's saying. All sin. And so we see that Adam in, in in chapter 5 here in verse 14, a couple of verses after, the Apostle Paul himself says that Adam is a type. He's an impression uh, of he who was to come. Uh, and Jesus is the fulfillment, and sometimes it's, he's called the anti-type because an anti-type would be the opposite, pointing to the opposite in the fulfillment of the type. Uh, in other words, through one man sin came into the world and Through that, all sinned, and, and that, and death came into the picture. And then through one man, if we went further in Romans 5, we're not going to go a lot further there. We'll touch on it some. But through that, that, through the one man, the second Adam, is how Paul calls Christ in that passage, all are made alive. All who would come. Not universal salvation, but any who would come would have the opportunity to exchange that sinful, dead life for being born again, for being made alive. And so the anti-type of Adam is Christ. He is the fulfillment of the opposite that would take place. So I hope you're bearing with me on that. In Romans 5.17, we read, For if by one man's offense, Adam, death reigned through the one, life leading to death, Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Death leading to life. You see the the temporal and the spiritual. You see the problem and the resolution. We'll get with that more as we go along. But death leading to life, understand, that's resurrection. And so... Here we see that all the way back to Adam, that he died, that they died spiritually. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. So for Adam, we see that judgment came upon him and upon the first man, original sin. What was the penalty of that? Humankind was cursed. What's the result? What's the resolution? That death spread to all men, life leading to death. The next thing I want to look at in Genesis is the flood with Noah. This is a great type in this. This is a great story here. And you see shadows of, of Christ and the resurrection through it. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, uh, we read, And the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Life leading to death. And then he says to Noah, he says, make yourself an ark. Interesting, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see again, coming forward now to New Testament times, coming forward that 1,500 plus years, Peter writes that divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved with water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection Of Jesus Christ. So Peter is looking at the type, the anti-type, that all the way back to Noah, when the grace of God waited. And here we see that grace was in place. It says in that same chapter that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so here we see now, we see the beginning of provision being made, that God must judge sin. He has to judge sin. He is ultimately, utterly, completely far above any of his creation as far as purity goes. Holiness, by definition, is purity, moral purity, as relates to infinity. He is infinitely pure. And we are not, obviously. And so, because he created us and he loves us, it's his work of redemption to purchase us back into fellowship. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of the cross. That's the point of the resurrection. Is God's love for us, and so don't get bogged down in the theology of this thing so much that you forget the point, that the reason why He's doing this, the reason why He goes to such great lengths, is because He loves us. He loves His creation, and He wants to bring us into fellowship with Him. And sin has broken that. Here's something that Charles Spurgeon said about Noah. He says Noah was not saved by the world's being gradually reformed and restored to its primitive innocence. But a sentence of condemnation was pronounced, and death, burial, and resurrection ensued. Noah must go into the ark and become dead to the world. The floods must descend from heaven and rise upward from their secret fountains beneath the earth, and the ark must be submerged with many waters. Here was burial, and then after a time, Noah and his family must come out into a totally new world of resurrection life. So we see that even in the story of the flood, we see a type, we see a shadow, we see an impression of the fulfillment that we would experience in Christ. So the judgment in those days was upon the the known world, upon the, the earth, for evil and for sin. The penalty for that was death, the flood. But the result, and here we see we see a, a spark in, in, in God's plan because he doesn't just wipe out everybody. By his grace, because Noah found grace in God's eyes. Not because of who Noah was, but because of who God is. God makes provision for these eight people to come through the flood. So it's grace in a limited sense, but it's grace demonstrated on, on behalf of God towards his creation. He's going to start over. He's going to start over with these people. The next thing I want to look at in Genesis is Abraham. Uh, great story there. And again, I, I wish that we could just take the time and, 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 you know me, I like to just break it down and break it down. But, but just so that you get a sense of of this, this thread of resurrection running all through the word of God. Looking at Abraham now in Genesis chapter 22, where not very far into the Bible, we have the, the account of Abraham nearly sacrificing his son Isaac. And then God himself providing a sacrifice in a ram. Remember, Abraham goes to Mount Moriah and he takes Isaac up on the mountain and he prepares the sacrifice. He gets the wood and all of that. And he draws back the knife to kill his son. And, and, and God says, wait, Abraham, no. I will provide myself a sacrifice, provide myself a sacrifice. And there was a ram stuck in the thicket. And so we see for the first time, we see the substitutionary death. And so God making provision, he's actually, he's using Abraham as an instrument of judgment. And then his provision coming and saying, no, he doesn't have to die. I'm going to make a substitutionary sacrifice for him. And we see a picture, again, a beautiful picture of what he would accomplish ultimately in Christ. So, going down through the ages, we look at this in Genesis chapter 22. There's nothing more that's revealed about Abraham's motives until we see in the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews comes back and he visits that and he says this in Hebrews 11. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Sound familiar? Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That's us. Concluding that God was able to raise, up, raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense, in a type. So the writer of the Hebrews openly declares that that was a type. It was a shadow. It was an impression in the Old Testament pointing to the Ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Uh, these and I don't know what this it, what this does for me. I look at this and I see the. I mean, the centuries and centuries of time that lapses between these events in the Old Testament, and even when they're writing this in the New, and then coming up two thousand years from that, it builds my faith. I see that there is a this thread, this message running through the Word of God that continues to touch down and to tag. And to give impressions of the the ultimate fulfillment that we enjoy. These people didn't. These were all partial fulfillments. None of this would lead ultimately to eternal life in in the sense of the events themselves. When we look at, and we'll look at, and we're going to look at Leviticus here in a little bit, we'll see that the word atonement means covering, it doesn't mean a taking away. And so these things were pieces and parts, portions of the story that would be ultimately told in the life, the person and the word of Jesus, our Lord. So we see that judgment, that, that as far as judgment goes, Abraham was an instrument of judgment, and the consequence was Isaac was to die, but the result was that the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice or a substitutionary death. Life, or death, giving way to life. We see that now coming into the seed. And it was all by God's grace. Isaac hadn't done anything to merit life. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet God in his grace pulled back using Abraham to pull back from the actual death of the son and putting that animal in its place. Moving forward to Exodus, I want to look at a couple of things here as we go along. So look at the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, we see that God, here's Israel, they had gone down 400 years when when the sons of, of Israel went down into the land and they began, they uh, they had grown into probably a million and a half people over that 400 years. And the Pharaoh that was raised up that didn't know Joseph, their ancestor, they put him into slavery. And then out of that slavery, he, he was just punishing these people with work that was almost impossible to accomplish. And that God raises up Moses and his brother Aaron as well to be deliverer for Israel. And so he gives the ten or the nine plagues on the nation of Israel. And the tenth one is the plague of death. And we see a, a beautiful picture there where they take a lamb, this innocent lamb that's spotless, and they, they kill it at twilight. And they take the blood of the lamb, they put it on the littles in the, in the doorpost of their houses so that that night when the angel of death comes and takes the firstborn, of all the people and the animals and the whole works, that the, the children of Israel are spared. And so we see in that a type. We see in that an impression for the fulfillment that Jesus, who would be our Passover, fulfills. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that, that Christ indeed is our Passover, who was sacrificed for us. The next thing in Exodus we look at, as we look at these shadows, these types, these these impressions from the Old Testament, is in the Red Sea itself. After the Passover had been accomplished and and Pharaoh said, go ahead and leave, and then he changed his mind, you see that the children of Israel, they go through, they leave Egypt, and they get out, they get up against the edge of the Red Sea, God parts the waters through Moses, and Israel passes through the Red Sea. And we're told that, that they are baptized into the Red Sea and resurrected to newness of life on the other side of it. That that was a type for baptism and for coming into resurrected life on the other side, that that would be God's judgment would be upon Egypt. The consequence was that as the Egyptian, Egyptian army pursued Israel, they got into the midst of the sea with the with the water still parted, and God closed it up, and He drowned the entire army. And so we look at again Jesus or Israel. Uh, Egypt is a type. In the Old Testament, for the world, when Abraham goes down into the Egypt and look at that, he goes to the world and he's seeking answers from the world. that's when he lies about his sister and all that, and get into that. But the point is is that these types are there for our instruction, for our edification, for our good, and for our understanding. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we see these impressions, these these visions, these things that point us to Christ. The result was that Israel was delivered through the sea to a new life. So death leading to life. In First Corinthians 10, uh, the Apostle Paul says, All of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Again, we don't have to deduce these things. Very often the type is pointed out in the New Testament, looking back. Corresponding to that in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Think about it. Baptism itself, folks, is a type. It's a type for when you're baptized, as a Christian, the the symbolism there is, is baptized leaving the old life behind, dying to the old life, going under that water and being resurrected to newness of life. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what baptism signifies. It's an outward sign of an inward act. Of course, it's not baptism that saves us. It's not, I mean, it's an act of obedience for sure, but baptism itself doesn't save us. It's it's showing the, the cleansed heart, the cleansed conscience that we looked at before. He says we were buried with him through baptism into death and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Death leading to life. The next place I want to stop is in Leviticus. And we're not going to go through, this will be the last book that we look at. But in Leviticus we see the day of atonement in chapter 16. Again, I, I want to clarify, when we're talking about the atonement for sins, atonement means covering. And the best that the Old Testament could produce through the people being obedient to the laws, the ordinances of the Old Testament, was a covering for sin. The Day of Atonement had to be, it, it had to take place every year, once a year. Yom Kippur is what we call it. It's what they call it. And, and, and it's the Day of Covering for the sins of the people. All of the sins of the people would be covered in this day. And yet, that wouldn't be, as we experience in Christ, forgiveness once for all, that his sacrifice once for all, uh, but it would would fall short of that because they'd have to come back next year and do the same thing. So, we have this Day of Atonement, and and in Leviticus 16, I'm going to just summarize here because there's a lot to it. There's a lot of detail. I'm going to leave a lot of the detail out just for the purpose of time. But in Leviticus 16, we see that, what it's talking about is the tabernacle. In those days they had, there was the portable tent where there was the outer court and then there was the holy place that had the table of showbread and the altar of incense and then the, the brass or the golden candle stand and then there was the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant was and they, the high priest could only go in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people behind the veil in that inner room, that holy of holies. And so, this is the instruction that God gave because Aaron, uh, was the high priest. He was the first high priest of the tribe of Levi. His sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, had gone in and taken things upon themselves. And it says that they offered strange fire to the Lord in trying to carry out these things that God had instructed. And they did it themselves. They, they, it, they just went in willy-nilly. I mean, it's thought that they had been drinking and all of that. But literally, fire comes down from heaven and consumes these guys. They're toast. And so now God is giving very specific instructions here in Leviticus 16. And he says, don't just think you can go into that holy of holies any time, Aaron. I want you to do this exactly as I prescribed it. And if you don't, you're dead, just like your boys. And so there was a very serious aspect of this being carried out to the letter as God prescribed. So Aaron was to wash himself, beginning here, he was to wash himself ceremonially to become clean. And then what he was to do was to put on linen garments, plain white linen garments. Now, the high priest usually wore these fancy robes, and they had bells and pomegranates on the, on the hem, and, and there was a, a, a breast piece. I mean, the, the priestly garments were very ornate. But to illustrate that Aaron is going, he didn't have any greater standing before God than any other man. And to illustrate that he was going strictly and totally by the grace of God in there, he was dressed in common clothing. Yes, they were cleansed and all of that, but it was commoner's clothing, the white linen. There was nothing special about Aaron. There was no attention drawn to Aaron in this. The attention would be on God. So he'd go in, and then it says that he would take a bull and that he would actually go in, he would, he would sacrifice this bull and take some of the blood and go in behind the veil and drop the blood of the bull seven times in front of the mercy seat facing east. Very specific instructions to atone for his own sin and to cleanse the place where he was. Now, That was the beginning of it. And so he would go in and he would drip this blood seven times before the mercy seat. We looked at last Easter, last Resurrection Sunday, we looked at the significance of that with the going fast forwarding to the tomb of Christ where there is the place where Jesus laid, bleeding seven places in his body where he bled. The thorns, the right hand, left hand, right foot, left foot, his back, and the sword piercing in his side, where the blood of the covenant was sprinkled in that tomb in seven from seven wounds on that tomb. And when Mary looks in, she sees the angel at the head and the angel at the foot, which is a perfect picture of this. It's a perfect picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And and we talked about that at length then, and and I'm not going to belabor that, but I do. I mean, it's so important to mention that because that was a type. It was a shadow, it was an impression in the Old Testament that has its fulfillment in that tomb. The the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, where the mercy of God would be poured out upon the people because Jesus had just finished on the cross atoning for sin. But it wasn't just an atonement that was limited as a covering, he was taking the sins away. We'll look at that in a second. So after Aaron did this thing with the bull, he was then to go get two goats. Two kid goats, two young goats, and that they would cast lots with these two goats. And there was actually, I mean, I remember when Harvey was doing his revelation study, we were looking at the the temple, um, the, the, the implements that they're using. And they actually had this, it was a little box that they would put the lots in. They would cast lots and they would pull out and assign a lot to each goat, one goat, would be for the Lord, and that goat would be sacrificed. His blood would be spilled. He would be sacrificed before the Lord for the sins of the people. The lot that fell to the other goat was called the scapegoat. And and you guys probably know, I mean, Washington, D.C., there are scapegoats all the time. But a scapegoat is is one who is not guilty of what has taken place, but he bears the weight of it. Okay? And that goes back to the Bible here in Leviticus 16, where we see the original scapegoat. And what that goat was for was, was for a very specific purpose, and we'll look at that as we go. So what he would do with the goat that belonged to the Lord, the goat that was going to die, is he would take, he would sacrifice the goat out at the altar, and then he would go in, take the blood of the goat, and sprinkle it seven times, do exactly as he did with the bowl. So the one goat, he goes in and he atones for the sins of the people. And the second goat, he would then come out and he would take and he would get this goat in front of the people out in the courtyard of the 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 tabernacle and he would lay his hands onto this goat as everyone looked on and he would pray and transfer the sins of the people, of all of the people, into this goat And that those sins would be transferred at that point from the guilt and from the people bearing the guilt and the weight of those sins would be transferred to the goat. And the goat would then be taken out into the wilderness and bear the people's sins away. Okay, so, I mean, it's a very complex, I've left out so much of the detail, but to summarize, you have two goats. One dies for the sins of the people. One bears their sins away. Fulfillment's in Christ. Why would they have two goats? Because there wouldn't be anybody until Jesus that the the, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, that would live a sinless life that could die for the sins of the people, the sins of humanity, and also then bear our sins away, take our sins away. And so Jesus fulfills both parts of that, but in a perfect sense, not in an imperfect, in a partial sense, as we see in this. So, Aaron goes and he does all of this. And then we look forward again into the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5, we read this. In verse 10, he says, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Reconciled through the death. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we see two aspects of that, don't we? But one person, not two goats. So one goat suffers a substitutionary death, life leading to death, and one goat bears the sins of the people away, death leading to life. In Hebrews chapter 9, beautiful depiction of this coming forward again, 1500 years. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer says this about, specifically about the things that are written in Leviticus 16 he says but christ came as high priest not aaron not just a man but a high priest the hebrews the book of hebrews says who has passed through the heavens so he comes as the perfect high priest so but christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle remember when god gave moses the instructions for the tabernacle he said look this is an earthly duplicate of that which is in heaven Jesus is the fulfillment of the type, the tabernacle, the place where atonement would be made, where the presence of God would dwell. And he fulfills every aspect of that. I would love to do a study sometime on the tabernacle and just get down into the details because every aspect of it, the furniture, the the way that it's built, everything points to Christ. Powerful typology there. At any rate, he says he came with a greater, and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Not a cover. Eternal redemption. That's good news. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the redemptive work of God throughout history. You've seen these pieces and portions, these impressions, these types, looking back, nearly 4,000 years, and saying, God, you had this in your heart all along. These things look forward to the ultimate fulfillment that you, taking the form of a man, would come, be born, grow up, walk this earth, and then go to that cross, but then not have death hold him, raised from the dead, being the firstborn of the resurrection so that we have the assurance that we are not going to just follow the natural order, life, Leading to death, but that for us, death leads to life as we follow the pattern that he set forth. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody, nobody, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is in the way to God. All of these things that we're looking at this morning point to the ultimate fulfillment that Jesus would be the way, the only way to God. This is on the truth about God. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer begins, he says, in times past, we, w- God spoke through, through the prophets and the fathers in many portions, in many ways, in pieces and parts. But now has spoken to us in son, in his son. The word his is in italics, but he's saying he's spoken to us in son. Not son like daddy, but son position. His son, the heir of all things. He says, through whom also he made the world. he goes under the creation there. But he's saying that God in the Old Testament spoke in portions, pieces and parts. Nothing would have the ultimate fulfillment, but there would be shadows that are fulfilled in his Son. That The reason why we celebrate, we remember, and and we honor the Lord through the resurrection this day is because of all that took place then, ultimately at the cross, when Jesus would be the ultimate truth about God. Partial truth along the way. The types, the shadows that we see. The ultimate truth in Jesus. He says, I'm the life of God. Sin could never be eradicated until the perfect man went to that cross. That he became the perfect sacrifice. One sacrifice for all. You don't have to go back next year. You don't have to have a day of atonement. You don't have to uh, keep going back and re-sacrificing the Son of God. He went to that cross once. Giving salvation. Death. The life. To any who would come. He says all you have to do is simply believe the work that I've done. And that's it. You get all of this. That's the resurrection. That's what he means when he says I am the way. I am the truth. And I'm the life. Have oh, A short video clip we're going to play and then uh, we'll have one last song.